All right, church, well, now it's our time to turn our attention and our thoughts to God's Word. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find your way to Genesis chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26 is where we're going to be at this morning. That very first book in the Bible, if you're using one of the Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be around page 20. Page 20. As a reminder, if you do not have a Bible or not have an ESV, which is just the English version that we use here at the church, uh, please feel free to take that home with you. That's just our gift to you. We're happy to have you have God's Word available to you. Now, as you're turning there, let me remind you what Genesis and really all the Bible is about. It's a book about God, right? All of Scripture, all of the Bible is a book about God. It's a book about God displaying and declaring His goodness over creation, and in particular to humanity, to humanity. It's a book about how God relates to and really interacts with people like you and I. People that maybe have sinned, maybe have walked away from God in different places, different times, in different ways. And ultimately, the Bible is a book about God's plan of redemption for those individuals. It's a book about how is God going to reconcile a sinful humanity back to himself. Back to himself. Now, that plan of redemption only comes through what we call the gospel. And that's the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That only comes through him. Now, when it comes to Christianity, one of the, the major objections that I hear from time to time is there's just so many hypocritical, or there's so many hypocrites in the church. There's so many Christians that say they believe one thing, but then they tend to do something else. And so they said, by default, that means Christianity can't be true. It can't be true if the followers mess up or do things that they say they won't do. Well, what they fail to see, and honestly, sometimes we fail to present as Christians is the reason that you're a Christian is not because you have been perfect or are perfect, but you're a Christian because you have failed, because you're in need of somebody else, because you're in need of God, because you're in need and you're putting all your hope and trust in the one person who was never a hypocrite, the one person who did live a perfect life, the one person who never did what he said he would not do. And that person is Jesus. See, Christianity is about him. And as followers, if you're a Christian this morning, it means that you're trying to promote him and what he has done. Really, everything that I do is in response to what Christ has done. Everything that I do is in response to what Christ has done. Now, you may be asking at this point, Luke... What does this have to do with Genesis 26? Like, what does this have to do with Genesis 26? And I'm glad you asked. So thank you for a few of you nodding to confirm that you were asking that question. 
Well, Genesis 26 is all about a man named Isaac. A man named Isaac. He's the promised son that came after Abraham. And he is now leading what will become the nation of Israel in their trusting of God and his promises for redemption and salvation to a people who are banking their trust in him. Now, Kevin DeYoung, he's a pastor in North Carolina. He calls Genesis 26 like, a, like an album, like a music album. He says, it's Isaac's greatest hits, okay? It's Isaac's greatest hits. Because the only chapter that we have in Scripture that really narrows in only on Isaac. We've heard about Isaac many times. We've seen moments of Isaac's life, and we'll see that later on. But this is the only chapter that zooms in on Isaac and who he is. And what he does. But here's what I want you to see. Here's what I want you to see. Even with someone as important as Isaac, right? This, this patriarch of the Christian faith, the author of Genesis, Moses, we believe, that's what Jesus told us, never tries to hide the faults of Isaac. Never tries to present Isaac as he's the one who's got everything together and that we should be like Isaac doesn't say that. In fact, the Bible repeatedly is on this quest to expose every single person in the Bible that they are sinners in need of a Savior. The Bible does not hold back from showing the faults of even people that were used mightily by God. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't learn from Isaac. We will learn from Isaac today. There was many wins in Isaac's life when he was trusting in God's promises and his provision. There's things that we can look at and say, I want to do that too. I want to walk in those same footsteps. But Isaac's not the goal. Isaac's not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. And he points us to him. And so what I want to do is continue our study in the book of Genesis, but do it in a way that we first and foremost are looking for what has God done rather than what we must do. What does God do with messy disciples like Isaac or like me or like you? That's what we're going to be looking at. Now, let me go ahead and just pray for us one more time. Uh, before I read through Genesis 26, and during that time when I'm praying for you, will you guys pray for me that we would all be able to walk out of here loving God's word and loving the author of it, Jesus, ultimately, more and more. So let's go ahead and just go into a time of prayer together. Well, Father, as we are about to look at your word, I want to come just with a, a reverent heart and mind to it. And I want everybody in this room to be able to desire to hear from you this morning, Lord. That ultimately we know that these words have been breathed out by you, have been breathed out for our encouragement, for our edification, for our hearts to be pointed to you in all things. So I pray for everybody in this room. I also want to pray for our kiddos next door and the teachers that are leading them as they look at the same passage and try to do it in a way that a, a three-year-old or four-year-old or five-year-old can understand in all the ages that they would see their great need for you, Jesus. 
and they would place their faith and trust in you today as we desire to, to do the same for ourselves. And so it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 26. 26. I'm going to go ahead and just read through the whole chapter as I normally do, and then we'll go back and walk through it together. Starting in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to save my wife, thinking, Lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When she had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, Because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. Verse 11. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death, death of Abraham, and he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you in Multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to him, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, 
We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, but are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemith, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Thanks be to God indeed. We're thankful for God's word. Right now, if you've been with us through our study of Genesis, much of what we read probably sounded very familiar. Because much of what we see in the life of Isaac, we have actually seen in his dad, Abraham. Now, is Moses just getting the stories mixed up by accident? Repeating them? No. No. Not at all. What is showcasing then, church, is that many of us, like Isaac, sometimes we repeat the same mistakes as ones who came before us. Sometimes we have a tendency to make the same mistakes. But we also see here in Isaac, church, is Isaac build upon the legacy that was left to him from Abraham to take what was started and continue it to the next generation But for our time today, what I'd like to do is look at this chapter more through three themes, because obviously there's a lot of text here that we can't walk through individually. So I want us to look at three themes that we see through Genesis 26. And if you're a note taker, you're going to love this, because it's three Ps, okay? Three Ps. There's promise, there's provision, and there's presence. Promise, provision, and presence. Let's start with promise, though. If you look back at verse 1, what do we learn? Well, we learn that there was another famine in the land. And Moses goes out of his way to tell us this is not the same famine as in Abraham's day. This is a new famine. A new famine. So, automatically, there would have been some tension to the listeners, right? To the original audience. And even for us today, a little bit. Because they wouldn't have been very long that they had just heard about the famine with Abraham. And they were going, uh-oh, we know what happened with that last famine. Abraham went to Egypt and basically sold off his wife in Egypt. Almost lost Sarah to where the promise was threatened. They're saying, oh, what's going to happen with Isaac? What's going to happen with Isaac? And I even believe that this is before Jacob and Esau. I don't think Genesis 26 is in chronological order compared to Genesis 25. So I don't even think Rebecca and Isaac have had kids yet. They're they're thinking, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? But quickly we learn that Isaac does not make the same mistake as Abraham, does he? We, We see that Isaac went to Gerar. Gerar. 
which is still in the promised land. It's still in the place in which God told them to be and to stay. Now, why did Isaac make that decision? Is he just smarter than Abraham? Did he learn from his father's mistakes? Well, maybe, maybe. But we are told in verses 2 through 5 that Isaac was given these promises from God. He was reminded of the promises of God And he was driven by that. We're told even explicitly that God said, do not go to Egypt, Isaac. Don't go there. Stay where I want you to stay. And even says, stay where I want you to stay because that's where I will be. That's where I will be. This is the land that I have promised you. And in verses 3 and 4, we see even that repetition of many of the covenantal promises that were given to Abraham are now repeated to Isaac. Showing us that the covenant is continuing. See, the promise of God's presence, right? A promise of a future seed that will bless the whole world. But here's an important reflection to think about. In many ways, Isaac, like all of us, he was given an option, right? He was kind of presented, hey, there's two ways that you can go about this. One is you can trust the world. You can go to where you think that there's food. You can take things into your own hands. You can trust the world, its values, its systems. You can trust its promises that it's giving to you, that the grass is greener on this side. Why don't you come over here? It'll be much better for you. Or we see the promises of God and saying, you may not see all the things right now but will you trust me that i will always make good on my promises will you trust me that i am a god who makes promises and keeps them do you believe that i cannot lie to you are you going to trust the world or are you going to trust me are you going to trust god church that's something that we are presented with every single day aren't we in some respect There's always something competing for your trust. There's always something competing to tell you that if you do this, right, if you buy this, if you join this group, if you say the right things here, you will be satisfied. You will feel complete. Your identity will be at peace. And right now, really, the world is saying, hey, look within. Look at yourself. Look as far inwardly as you can and come up with an identity. Make your own identity. Take it into your own hands. But the promise of God, church, then as it is for us now, is God saying, no, 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 don't look within. Look at me. Look at me. Let me give you your identity. Let me give you your purpose in life. Let me. I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who knows everything. You can trust me even when you don't see how it's all going to work out right now. Even if we look at verses 3 and 4 in our passage, we'll see that God's saying, no, 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 I'm the one who will give you things. It's not you to take it into your own hands. Look at verse 3. It says, sojourn in this land and I will be with you. I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath. In verse 4, it says, I will multiply your offspring. In verse 5, it says, Abraham obeyed my voice. Not his inner voice. My voice. He kept my charge. 
my commandments. In this world, even for Christians, right, even for those who are desiring to walk with God, desiring to hold fast to the promises of God, the world will, will lure you to say, you should really move on from that. He's not moving fast enough. Take it into your own hands. Constantly telling you that the peace that you want, right, the peace of a kingdom, the peace where everything is right in the world can be attained without the king. That you don't need the king to have the kingdom. Or you don't need God to have Eden or paradise. And it's simply a lie. It's a lie that the world continues to bring up that says that you can have the kingdom without the king. So we have these wonderful promises given to Isaac here. The wonderful promises established to the next generation. And what do we see from Isaac? He trusts them, doesn't he? Right? He trusts them. And he goes, I will stay. I want to go where you go, Lord. And in verse 6, it says that Isaac settled into Gerar. Whew. Maybe Isaac won't make the same mistakes as Abraham did. But then verse 7. It doesn't take long. We find out that it didn't last very long. It's kind of like our life, too, sometimes. Look at verse 7. It says, once again, we have a husband telling everyone that his wife is his sister in order to spare him and his own life. That he was afraid that he would be killed for her beauty. The same sin that he saw his, well, he didn't see it, but he heard about how his dad had made that mistake twice before. Once in Egypt and also in the same area. Isaac failed to protect his wife. Failed to protect his marriage. Failed to honor it. And on this side of the cross, we can look back as Christians and say, he failed to love Rebecca in the way that husbands are called to love their wives as Jesus loves the church. Because what did Jesus do for his bride Right? Because Jesus is the better Isaac. That he didn't sacrifice his bride for his sake, but rather laid down his life for his bride's sake. Isaac committed another grievous sin. Grievous sin. And you just kind of want to go, really, Isaac? It is parts of me like, he must have heard the stories. Right? He must have heard from whether it was Abraham or from somebody else about these sins that his dad had committed, and yet he's fallen into the same trap. But then as I step back and I look at my own life, how many times have I said that to myself? Really, Luke? The same sin? The same? You're still not trusting God here? You still feel like the grass is greener over here? You still feel tempted and drawn to not trust God in this part of your life? See, I'm just like Isaac. I'm just like Isaac. That's why it's, he's not the hero. Someone that I want to emulate what the good things. But I want to remember that my Savior is the one that I want to look at. But here is once again, once again, what do we see? We do see God's provision 
We've seen the promises, but now we see the provision of God. Because Rebekah, unlike Abraham, Rebekah wasn't taken into the king's harem right away. Right? Unlike Sarah, there wasn't the immediate threat, even though there was a threat. But what we see is that through God's mercy, the lie of Isaac is outed very quickly. Before there's a a threat. Look at verse 8. It says, when they had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, that language that Isaac was laughing with Rebekah, uh, in the Hebrew, it, it, it's not a wrong interpretation. But what it signifies is there was maybe more than going on in like joke telling between Isaac and Rebekah here. And we even know this kind of contextually from looking at the passage, because Abimelech, who, by the way, is probably not the same Abimelech as Abraham. Abimelech was more of a title, like a captain or a chief. But he looks out the window and sees Isaac laughing with Rebekah and concludes that brother and sister should not do that. Whatever they were doing, he concludes that that should not be a brother-sister thing. So what does he do? Maybe he's grossed out, wants to get the answers. He confronts Isaac. He confronts Isaac and finds out the truth. And like his father, though, Isaac has shown grace and mercy from Abimelech. Right? This pagan king, this pagan rule. We even see in verse 11 that even upholds marriage more than Isaac does, it seems like. And he gives mercy to Abimelech. He gives, or from Abimelech, Isaac receives mercy. He receives things that he did not deserve. Did not deserve. So despite Isaac's sin, despite Isaac's sin, that's really important, Isaac continues to have the provision of God over his life. Right? It wasn't to earn God's love, but it continued to pour it out. Continued to get poured out. It's really even despite of Isaac's actions. God provides. And it says in verse 12 that Isaac sowed in the land after this. It says it reaped a hundredfold that very year. And remember, this was during a famine. A global famine was taking place. So a hundredfold harvest would have been monumental for everybody around. It would have been a miracle, which is exactly what God wanted it to be. He wanted them to see that it wasn't because of Isaac. It was because Isaac's God was taking care of him. And ultimately, what we see in our text is this caused tension between Isaac and Abimelech because it grew his power. And so Abimelech basically threw Isaac out of the city. So Isaac settled down in the valley outside of it. But what we see is that for Isaac, his life, it didn't get easier. Right? There was still tension. There were still issues going on. And in verses 18 through 20, we see that Isaac, as he's following the steps, the faithful steps of his dad, and rebuilding these wells that his dad started, there's, there's conflict. There's tension. Right? There's opposition, even. There's contention with the herdsmen. We see even the few times, every time they dug a well, there was some kind of 
fight over it. But yet Isaac was the one who named the wells. So even though he didn't say there, naming it gives you some authority. You see, the path wasn't easy for Isaac to trust God. There were times where it didn't seem like God was opening the doors or allowing things to be easy. But yet, that was the plan of God. And we have to remember that. So even when we're, we're following God's will, right, we're, we're walking with him, it does not mean that that path will be easy or there will be without any strife. Because we tend to think sometimes that if God is with us in this, it won't be hard. Things will just come together. And obviously that happens a lot of the times, right? Where Isaac dug, water was there. But it doesn't mean that everything will be easy. God still wants his dependence from us to him in all ways. But what did Isaac do? If you look down at verse 25, what did Isaac do with all of this provision from the Lord? It says that he built an altar. He built an altar. He called upon the name of the Lord. He pitched his tent. He began to worship. He realized that everything that was happening to him, everything that was good and everything that was bad seemingly, was God was in control of it. And he wanted to give praise to where praise was due. And he did so in the way, in the language here. Moses wants to say, even show us that it was just like his dad. The way that he built an altar, the way that he committed himself to God's promises and anchored himself there. And that's church where we have to take a moment and go, the people that come before us, have an incredible role in teaching us how to worship and who to worship. Whether that means, you know, from a dad to his kid, whether that means an older member to a church to the younger member in the church, whether that means just to somebody that you have influence in, somebody that looks up to you. If you've been walking with Jesus longer than they have, we are looking up to you in so many ways. And I think we need to have the responsibility to go, okay, what, what are we learning what am I teaching those who come into this church? What am I teaching those in my household about what it means to worship? I just want to take it seriously. Knowing that the next generation's coming and they're going to remember what I did. They're going to remember what I did with my time. They're going to remember what I did with my money. They're going to remember how I worshipped and who I worshipped. Isaac, I believe, here is indicating that he's resolving himself to remain steadfast to the promises of God. No matter the pains of life, he was going to anchor himself into it because he wanted to go where God was going. Even in the very last verse of this chapter where we learn about the marriage of Esau to these, these Canaanite women, we see that Isaac's life is not going to get easier. There's still things that are going to happen. Even after he's committing himself to doing this, there's still things that are going to be hard. And Moses gives us a little snapshot into what's to come. That we've seen the promises of God. We've seen the provision of God. But now I want to direct us to that last thing. Because you might have noticed throughout the chapter, even as I read it, there was this idea of God's presence being throughout it. That through all the ups and downs of Isaac's life, there was one thing that was constant, and that was the presence of God. In verse 3, we saw the promise of God's presence. 
In verse 24, we saw Isaac, as he's talking with Abimelech and Ahuzath and Phicol, right, who are these commanders, these leaders of this secular pagan nation. They're saying, we want to make a treaty with you. Why? It says in verse 28, because plainly the Lord has been with you. See, they recognize that there's something unique about the, the presence of God. Something that can't be matched by this world. And church, now we can look back. This is where I want us to read the Bible as Christians, right? To look back at Genesis 26 with a great smile on our faces. Because the God who desires to be with his people here, right, to be with Isaac, is the same God in whom we worship today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what is this? What does the presence of God have to do with Christians? Well, it has everything to do with Christians. It has everything to do with our Savior. Do you remember the, the name, the prophetic name that was given to Jesus in the Old Testament? It was Emmanuel. Do you remember what Emmanuel means? God with us. It's why when Jesus was born, right, when, when Jesus came into our world, right, took on our humanity, we celebrate because God was with us in the ultimate sense. And then God, that same God who took on humanity, when he grew up, what did he do? He lived the life we couldn't live, right? He died the death that we deserved, right? He demonstrated his presence in the ultimate way, the ultimate way of saying that I'm not only going to be with you, but I'm going to do the very things that you can't do for yourself. And it was Jesus who, when he was with us, he gave his life as a payment for our sin, right? Paid the ransom, paid the wrath that was due to us for anybody who would place their faith and trust in that work, in that atonement, right? In that substitution, But what about now? What about for Christians now? Well, the cross still has major implications. It's how we get right with God. It's how our sins are atoned for. But the presence of God, that's still an ongoing promise that's given to Christians. Because Jesus now calls, calls followers like yourself, like me, that even though, like Isaac, we've received the promises of God, we have not received the full land of God. We haven't seen and inherited the final dwelling place of us where sin no longer has any reign. That we too are called to go where God tells us to go and to go where God's presence will be. Listen, the Christian life is not a you do you, and then you help, hope that God just tags along. It's a always trying to refine is, am I going where God has called me to go? And here's the wonderful thing, church. Where God has called us to go and God has called us to be and be about, it's not a mystery, right? It's not this... It's not Gnostic information, right? It's not secret information that we have to uncover somewhere in a cave somewhere or get the right things 
It's actually been given to us. It's plain in Scripture. And one of the most plain areas where we see this is somewhere that you've probably seen many times before, and that's in the Gospel of Matthew, before Jesus returns to his throne, right before his ascension, after his resurrection in Matthew 28, what's often referred as the Great Commission, we see the call of the Christian life. It's on the screen. Let's look at it together. When Jesus says, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we've been told where to go. It's to all the nations. And do what? Teach them about Jesus, right? Teach them about the gospel. Teach them about the triune God who has accomplished and sealed their salvation. To teach them, verse 20, all that I have commanded you. Or we like to say around here, follow Jesus and help other people do the same. That's the calling. We're not having to wonder, do I have to go to Gerar? Do I have to go to Egypt? He says, go everywhere. But this is your mission when you go. This is your mission when you go. But who is the one that we're pointing people to? Is it to us? Is it to our obedience? No. Do we want to walk faithfully? Absolutely. But go tell them about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Go tell them all of which I have commanded you. Go tell them about the good news of the gospel. That's what we see the early disciples doing, is going and planting churches and heralding the gospel. If you want to know how the original audience of the Great Commission interpreted and understood that, we have the book of Acts. And we get to see how they took that and went. But let's look at the promise at the end of Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you always. God's presence always with you. It's always with us. Primarily through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Whom is sometimes referred to as Christ's presence. But Christian, hear this. Hear this good news. Your Savior will never abandon you. He will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. He promises that as you go, as you do this, I will be with you how many times? Once? Twice? Three times? Always. Always, church. So church, don't believe the lies. Don't believe the lies of this world that he will forsake you or that you can outsin him. You can outsin his grace, that you can outsin the cross. You can't. He's always calling you back to it. Right? Don't believe the lies of this world that there is greener grass somewhere else. Because it's not. Behold, I am with you always. You see, only the God of the Bible gives that unwavering promise. That unwavering promise of presence and redemption. An unwavering promise that the brokenness of this world will not have the last word. The unwavering promise that what he says he will do, he will do. 
And just like we've been doing throughout all of Genesis is trying to connect this to who God is. What does he do? Because in Isaac's life, we saw those promises which were fulfilled, right? Because we know that Jesus came, right? So that promise of the seed that would bless the entire nations, it came in Jesus. We saw that the... In, the land that was promised them would be given to them. And even though that we're still waiting in some respects for the, the full understanding of that land, which the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth, we can trust him that he's going to make good on his promises. So don't believe the lies that you can have the kingdom without the king. Or that there's an Eden out there somewhere without God himself making it. We know who the king is. His name is Jesus. And so we're putting all our hope in him. And so, Christian, when you do find yourself being a hypocrite, when you have done something that you said that you would not do, because we're all going to do it. We're all going to sin, even though we don't want to sin. Doesn't mean that we look for sin. Doesn't mean we try to sin. But even when you do, church, what you get to do in that moment is you get to exalt Christ. You get to turn from that sin and turn to him and say, I need you. Thank you for paying for all my past, my present, and all my future sins. I still need you. And so if the world's watching in, please let them. Let them see you fail because it's then that you get to point them to your Savior. That's what we want. We don't want people to object for Christianity because of us. We want people to see that the true purpose of Christianity is Christ, the Christ of Christianity. And what good news is that for us today? So the God of Genesis 26 continues to give his presence for us today. And I'm going to pray for just a moment. I'm going to come up and actually we're going to sing a song first. Then we're going to celebrate communion, which is a meal of us remembering and celebrating God's presence with his church today. So let's go ahead and end there. Let me pray for us and go from there. Well, Father, I'm thankful that we have you above all else. That, Jesus, we have your presence and your provision and your promises and even as we remind ourselves of all the promises and provision and presence that you have with Isaac, let it catapult our own minds and, and love to you. Because what you did then is what you continue to do now. Because, God, you continue to bless me in so many ways. And I'm not talking, Lord, you know I'm not meaning you know, financially or, or from material ways, even though you've done that. I got a roof over my head. I got food to eat. But God, you have blessed me in, in so many bigger ways, so many more in-depth ways that you revealed yourself to me. And I don't want to take that for granted for a second, Lord. And I want anybody in this church to take it for granted. And God, I pray even for those that may not know what they believe, that you would just confirm who you are with them right now. 
and they would stop playing the game with the world and be able to turn and trust you for everything right now, no matter what's on their plate, that you can be trusted because you are good and you have authority because you're the king. And it's in your mighty name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.